0: the sports career podcast episode 321 how to make your sports career dream a reality Hello, Sports Achiever, and welcome back to another episode of the Sports Career Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a sport industry special guest who will inspire and encourage you to be the best version of yourself in the sports industry. I hope today's episode can support your sports career development, interests, and needs. Now, getting back to today's podcast special guest is Carly Tate. Carly is a former Paralympian and currently a diversity, equality and inclusion consultant. Now, be prepared to be inspired, because in 2012, Carly was in the stands watching the Paralympics closing ceremony, and then four years later, she was actually competing in the Rio Paralympic Games. So for that reason, without giving too much away, it's such a pleasure to have Carly as a podcast special guest on the show, and she's going to share with you her sports career journey, but explain how you can make your sports career dream a reality as well. Carly, it's such a joy to have you on the podcast show. Please you share to listeners your sports career journey. When did it all start?
1: Well, um, I, when I describe my sport journey, it's definitely not a typical one. So um, it really started when I was 27. Prior to that, I did not do any type of physical activity, no fitness, no no sport for fun, no, nothing. A very sedentary. I was born disabled. Really growing up, I was just taught that you have to do what you need to do to blend in, to fit in. Um, you can't be a burden. Don't ask for too much. Um, I went to a mainstream school, luckily. At the time, because you know we were still in kind of like an era where disabled people weren't really in society, and so I went to a mainstream school, did PE um, begrudgingly because the PE that was on offer was not adaptive. It was so it was non-disabled sport, and um, you know your classic netball rounders, and they would do this thing, which I imagine is a lot of people's nightmares where you get split into teams. And you know that horrible waiting game of waiting to be picked? And it's just brutal, isn't it? And I obviously never got picked. Um, And, yeah, no, I just found sport really humiliating. So I was really glad to see the back of it when I left school. But then I, over time, over time since leaving school, I just became even less active Um, I I worked in an office, Um, I learned to drive, so that cut down a lot of what I was already doing physically, Um, I began smoking at 18, very unhealthy, I, I had a very typical 20 odd year old lifestyle, and I would party at the weekends and then go to work. Monday to Friday, and and that's that's how it was. My friends would joke all the time, like, oh, Carly's allergic to exercise. So I didn't have any ambition, no vision of being a sports person, absolutely not. And um, London 2012 came around. And for me, I had never seen disabled people so positively represented on our screens and the olympics obviously helped with a bit of buzz because the olympics was first and everyone loved that it was in london everybody loved that it was a home games and yeah people were really bought into it but then everyone was like "Mm, it's finished and they were all gutted and i remember people being quite like oh well, you know, maybe the Paralympics might be something. And then the Paralympics started to ramp up and the noise started to ramp up and then everybody got behind it. People were buying tickets for the first time in its history. It was selling out. So I sort of thought, oh, well, this obviously is something to, to take notice of. And it felt like a bit of a movement, especially for the disabled community. So I thought, well, I'm going to go to the closing ceremony, which was the only tickets kind of available. There were no sessions, no um, heats or finals or any sports left by the time I decided to get tickets and um, went to the closing ceremony. And so basically at the time of my life, for a lot of different reasons, um, I was finally, I felt like I was in a place where, I was being celebrated. Even though they were celebrating the athletes, I felt celebrated. Nothing was too much trouble, you know? Um, so I, I was on the closing ceremony and I sort of turned around to the person that I was with and I said, do you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Rio. And he said, oh, right, yeah, you mean to watch it? And I said, no, I'm going to go. And be an athlete and I'm going to go and do it. And that that is the start of that journey.
0: But we have a pause Carly because this is so powerful your first um reply. Wow, honestly um I'm a bit like vocal because I just love the whole journey, but I want to go back because I think we can help people now, particularly with the to schools. Could you share some guidance of where you would like to see change, or well, there could be already change, with regards to making sport more accessible. i would be honest, when I went to school, it was very much the same. I'm keeping it very simple, just from the listener experience, but you had boys played rugby or football, girls played netball and rounders. Things have changed that there's a, you know, they're trying to make it more inclusive, but how can we better so it gets rid of those stigmas? Because it's the, if you don't, if, now I've listened to you, it's those school experiences that provided those horrible traumas psychologically for you not to carry on sport and sport isn't always about winning or losing it's about our physical health so I just love your thoughts on how we can address this in a real positive light for positive change I'll just love your thoughts before we talk about your your athletics journey which is inspiring as well but uh, the mic's yours
1: oh thank you well the, the sport and the school experience for me definitely go hand in hand I went to school at a time where disability was even more taboo than it is now. However, it did have the benefit of not being segregated at high school. So I was segregated quite a lot in primary school in the sense that I was given different things to do and put on a different table, not allowed to do certain things that the other kids were doing. But high school was a lot more... The high school I went to was a lot more embrace of me. So I went to a high school with a couple of thousand children and I was the only one, um, like me. And you stick out so much, especially me, I had calipers on, hearing aids, um, and that's the last thing you want to be at 15, 14. Um, so schools really, I do think, have a sort of duty to almost put that person sort of at the centre of their efforts, um, especially in a, in a lot of d work that I do. Marginalised people should be at the core of a diversity and inclusion strategy it's not all about them but it's it's almost a way of they're the most disadvantaged for many reasons so what can we do to make sure that they're in an environment that they can thrive and that that's the key is what is the environment that you're creating for disabled children and adults for me an environment that would support that would be an environment without barriers so from a sport perspective I had to adapt to all of the sports that were on offer but I couldn't actually physically do them so I had a helper in certain classes PE was one of them and Say, for example, it was rounders in PA, I was given the opportunity to bat the ball, but then my helper would run around the bases on my behalf. That has no physical value whatsoever. So I think any experience that marginalises somebody further or others somebody further is going to be detrimental so I think anything that you can do to close that gap I think talking about it is a good first step because a lot of people think that disability to quote one of my favourite activists a lot of people tend to think that disability is a deficiency and it's not it's just a difference There's many disabled sports you can do out there that is for everybody.
0: Just to give a good example, last year, the Rugby League World Cups, where they had the men's, the women's and wheelchair rugby. Can this be a good example of good practice of inclusion like wheelchair rugby because it provides able and disabled athletes to compete and just play the sport together I just love your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, no, so wheelchair rugby is definitely an example of inclusive sport because you can have disabled and non-disabled people taking part at the same time. Um, it's it's a really collaborative sport as well. You also get a huge amount of benefit because it's a team sport as well, which I find actually as a solo type of athlete you know one track one lane one person I didn't get a huge amount of social benefit whereas actually when you are in a team that helps you with the world it helps you with work it helps you with school it helps you navigate it helps you build relationships so wheelchair rugby is an excellent um, example and I'm actually setting up a team in Manchester currently so um purely because you know i have a little boy he's four i mean not that i might i I don't know whether i'd put him in one now but you know when he got a bit older i would love to play sport with him and i don't have that opportunity at the minute you know you go to the school playground or you go to our playground and i can't put him in the swings And that I can't do anything with them. And that kind of, it does upset me. So, yeah, anything that you can do together is is brilliant. And it's fun. Exactly.
0: The big hits. They love that. They crave it. You know, when they, you know, trying to collide. It's a bash. bash, (laughs) Exactly. Wow. What a cool conversation. Look, I want to now pivot now to the journey again, because I wanted to highlight that. But now I want to talk about that moment when you decided to be an athlete. And I know you said when you were at the Paralympics, so I went, by the way, I went to the uh, velodrome with my father. I bought him tickets and he goes, "We went to the cycling. It was amazing, absolutely amazing experience. So I can connect with you from 2012. But the moment you said, I'm going to go to Rio. What was your thought process of that next step? Was it a lot of overwhelm or was it like, did you figure out a game plan? I'm just curious, of what was that first step to get you on this journey?
1: For me, I am a really methodical person. I'm really quite um, organised. I've been described in the past as linear. I don't think this is a bad thing. I think it comes from really having a childhood that was quite restricted and I had a lot of boundaries, um, and but also it comes from the ability of me having to manage my condition. So you know I can't. I do lose a bit of spontaneity sometimes. So I need to know where I'm going, what I'm doing. Does it have parking? Is it accessible? So I'm. I'm kind of already like that. I'm sort of tuned in to finding a solution. I think is what I'm saying um so with this whole like light bulb kind of like oh I think I think this is something that I can do um yes that's what I'm gonna do so as soon as I had that I just really were backwards from the goal so uh, I was like right well I need to go to the Paralympics so for me that means getting faster and getting fitter okay I need to find somebody And I think that was where it just sort of snowballed. So I found somebody. I managed to research clubs in the local area, found somebody near me in Manchester. He had lots of equipment, so I didn't need to worry about that. So I rented equipment off him. And I basically did everything that that man told me to do for four years. Wow.
0: Okay. there's number one. So. We've got the planning stage. Now, this is the one I'm super curious. And this is relating to Martin's book. And you said it already with regards to the smoking, the parting, breaking those habits. Like, how did you implement that? Because it's always easy said than done. Quit smoking, stop partying. But when you do that, the people around you may be a different environment because that's what you were so used to. So I'm just curious, like, looking back, how did you break those behaviors to then focus on this vision
1: yeah I'm very driven I'm a very driven person I'm really ambitious again that comes from childhood and it comes from like this innate drive to prove people wrong and I think when I am not seeing results or I'm not seeing results quick enough or how I expected to see them, then I'll make changes. Um, I mean, for me, the, the first one that I had to do was um, sort my eating out, because I literally could not get in the, the chair. So I'd never been in a wheelchair before, but I definitely hadn't been in a sports chair, which is typically smaller. And I couldn't get in the biggest one that he had. It was built for a man in the 80s. It was a really old chair. But I just couldn't fit in it. And um, so straight away, I almost had to, that's the biggest, that's the first barrier. You, you can't train until you can fit in it. So that was relatively easy, that one. I mean, as a, as a journey, the whole food thing was was difficult. But it's because I knew this is going to help me get there this is one of those small margins that's going to help me be the best I can be. And that's the kind of narrative and commentary that I just ran through my head all the time. Um,
0: okay. So, so during that four year period before Rio, because that was the end goal in mind, you've said barriers a fair few times in this conversation. How do you approach a barrier? And when do you know when a barrier is ticked off? Because I think this will help the listeners non-sport related sport related because we all face them but sometimes we don't realize we've we've overcome it or we're always that sort of barrier focus which for you it's a good thing to get in that chair to then focus on the next task but how do you approach a barrier that makes sense
1: i mean barriers can be anything um so yeah. it can be a physical barrier, it can be a mental barrier, it can be a barrier that somebody else is imposing on you through their attitudes or or something like that that you're having to be confronted with. Um I think the way that I have always done that is to is to almost face into it. Lead into
0: it is a term I use. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm.
1: And be like, um, and use it and leverage it and to almost take the power away from it. So the the biggest barrier that I had in starting sport is that um, people just genuinely didn't think that I would be able to do it because they knew who I was. But they didn't really know who I was. So... I knew that people's prejudice was going to kind of be something for me to overcome. So, um, you know, because I do want people to get behind me. I do want investors, I do want people to invest in my journey. Um, So I just basically used it as motivation to work harder. And I feel like it almost, I turned it from prejudice into power in the sense and I used it to fuel myself so I think yeah that's almost how I I tend to do it but then the other other way that I do it is to literally find solutions I'm really I'm all about solutions not problems and as much as I'm not not saying that problem doesn't impact me it does it it it's not to minimise the impact or the effects of a problem. But for me to get through it personally, I have to be very, okay, how do I fix this?
0: So on that note, for me, uh, really quick, I did a boxing thesis at university with two world ch- champion boxers. And one of them, he actually became world champion because he was the underdog. And he, like you said, he did it to prove a lot of people wrong. Would you say that's how you look at it as well? You were like the underjob mentality and that was your internal motivation at the beginning to prove people wrong, but then eventually, because I have learned this through other athletes, if you want to prove people wrong, that only goes so far with motivation. The real motivation is internal fulfillment. Like you said, when at the, at the Paralympics, it was that celebration of the disability community. When was that shift where at the beginning you were internally you you wrong, but then you got to a point where you're the role model for others? Gosh, that's a big question, but I'm curious.
1: Mm. The shift, you know, it, it was so gradual. I was the underdog for the whole of my career. I was never not on top, in the sense that when I started, I was going to Rio. I was at square one. But all of the people that I had to almost beat or be comparable with had were on that start line in 2012. So I had to expedite the process. So th- that time frame of four years did definitely help. Not just the motivation, but it kind of kept me very on the path because I knew I didn't have age or... Um, time to to waste. So that that uh, did help. And you know, when I entered the sport, no one—I wasn't a threat, so no one was worried about me. I was, I was absolutely the underdog. Um, my person, well, my actual category that I was in was very heavily dominated, <clears throat> so I had a lot of competition. But I continued to be. The underdog i think really until i actually got to a paralympic games i got to a paralympic games without any um financial support from british athletics at the time because i wasn't on the program and you're not on the program until you can prove that your medal potential And up until Rio, they didn't think that I was medal potential. So I didn't have any of that. And I think the shift came after Rio. And I said to myself, well, I'm going to do another year because I wasn't massively happy with my performance in Rio. I was pleased about it, but I wasn't. I thought, oh, I can do better. I can do better. And actually, yeah. That whole experience of being in Rio wasn't what I thought it was going to be. So that's why I then did another year just to sort of finish off almost on a high.
0: Awesome. We're going to take a little time out in this period because the one thing I haven't talked about is the performance side. Can you actually remember your first ever, so you got into the chair, can you remember your first ever training session? Because I think, in, I want to bring in Martin very shortly, but Martin said one of the first rides, it, first sessions, it took you 10 minutes to do it and you had to really refine the time to a couple so I'm just curious of your first training session and from a mindset perspective when did that sink in going oh my gosh I've got to do a lot of work to reduce the time I'm just paint the picture there for the listeners please
1: so when I contacted the coach that lived nearest to me and bearing in mind when I looked at coaches the nearest one was either 15 minutes away from me, or in Leeds, which is an hour and a half, or Glasgow. So I had absolutely no option but to go to this coach who was 15 minutes away. And so I'd already sort of mentally prepared myself for, if you don't gel with this person, or if you don't like this track, or if something's not right about this club, it's off, because this is the only way you're going to get to Rio. I was working full time. I'm not going to drive to Leeds after work to train. So I got there. And actually, um, it was really cold, wet, windy, dark. It was November. And he said, come to the track and we'll just get you started. I wasn't anticipating that there would be a bunch of athletes already zooming around the track. He had an established group, and they were going so fast, and I was like, "Oh, I'm not. I just uh, I think I don't know how to do this." And um, he was like, "Don't worry about them. You just get in this chair." Of course, I couldn't get in the chair that he had. Um. So he said, "Okay, well, why don't you get into somebody's day chair?" As I call them, that's what he called them. And I had never, to paint the picture, never used mobility aids in my sort of day to day life. Maybe if I'd injured myself, I would, but I completely renounced mobility aids. I hated them. I hated being disabled. I hated everything it stood for. I hated all association. Absolutely not. Am I going in a wheelchair? Thank you. So this was a real shift for me personally to even just get in the chair. But I, I'd recognized from this from the Paralympics that the chair was my route to success. It was no longer going to to hinder me, and that's how I always used to think of chairs. So so i got in this day chair, never propelled myself in a day chair. If I've been in a chair before, I've always been pushed. So I' got in this day chair and it took me like 10 minutes to go round the track. And I was exhausted at the end of it, but I I was just a bit on top of the world almost. I, I I wasn't thinking, oh my gosh, like look how far I've got to go. I just I really didn't think like that. I just thought one step at a time because I knew I, I had a lot of work to do. So how, what I wasn't expecting to be. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting to have any talent, and I, I didn't have any talent. I always maintain that this was not about talent. I've got zero talent. And um, when I retired from sport, I could do that same 400 metres in 66 seconds. Pardon? So, 66 seconds.
0: Wow.
1: I know. So, like, shaving... You know, nine
0: minutes and 44, six, nine yeah? Minutes. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Right. So I need to ask this question now because it gets asked a lot in business, in sports, in personal development. Could you share your thoughts on effort versus talent?
1: Talent is always helpful. Talent is probably for many the gateway to many great things. So if you recognise that you have a talent, then obviously you're going to enjoy something that you can do, so you'll go and do it more. Um, I don't think talent is a prerequisite for success. I don't think talent has any substance without effort. I think you can have all the talent in the world, but if you're not utilising it and you're not working it or honing that craft or putting that effort in, then it's completely pointless. Um, I, I think hard work is the basis of of all success in, in athletics. I just if you didn't work hard and if you didn't put that that work in, one of my friends said you get out what you put in. When I started the journey, and I was like, and I sort of viewed that as a mantra the whole way through. Oh yeah, you do get out what you put in. And I kind of thought to myself, well, if I know that I'm working hard, then I'm not going to regret anything. I'm not going to um, compare myself to somebody and and think negatively about myself. If I know that I'm putting everything that I can into it, then I'm going to be happy. Um, about that so yeah I think hard work completely trumps talent.
0: So on that note because we're going from nearly 10 minutes to 66 seconds could you remember that was there a period of the training when you were hitting a certain time but then out of nowhere due to consistency due to discipline things went to under a minute because that's that fine margin of elitism in, in from a performance standpoint could you remember that shift? Is that the four-year period? What years did things just click to that zone?
1: The shift with my times. So, you know, my times gradually went down as they would. When you're starting at such a low level as I was, those gains are going to happen all the time. You're going to shave off seconds all the time because because you're working, because you're putting that in. Um, but when you become almost at that level where you have pushed your body, pushed your body, pushed your body, and you're not getting those times, it then takes something else to get you those times. I think I started to see massive gains in 2015. So we're talking like three years into the journey. Um Yeah, 2015, Um, and I do put a lot of that down to not just the physical training, but the sort of the mental investment that I had to, to do in this journey as well, because I was coming from a place of not even having practice at sport days, let alone elite sport in front of thousands of people, or even just people that were on the track. On a weekend, you know, you could race in front of 50 people or thousands and I would always mess up. I never competed to the standard that I trained at and it used to to really frustrate me. But then I started to do a lot more work on, you know, what's holding me back here? And when I started to work on that, as well as the physical training, it kind of all kind of came together. And in 2015, that's when I really noticed those improvements.
0: So is that when you looked at your training a lot more seriously from the mindset perspective training? Because I want to bring in Martin, if you don't mind, Uh, Martin Robert Hall, everybody. He's been on the podcast twice. You must listen to his podcast, but it's from his book. I learned about Carly's story and I'm like, still blown away throughout this conversation, but... Would you mind just sharing the role Martin had with regards to that four-year period?
1: I brought Martin onto my team, as I call it, um, very quickly, actually, because I did my first ever season in 2013. And I had a long training period before I competed. And as soon as I competed, I lost my first race to an 11-year-old boy so, and this, I would, I would not preempt that at all. I did not have it in my head that I was going to fail. So, I immediately failed. The gun went off. I kind of almost froze. I panicked and I had the worst race of my life. And actually, that sort of set the tone for a lot of my competitions in that season in 2013. So at the end of 2013 season, I was glad to see the back of it. And I just thought, I'm going to concentrate on training. I'm going to concentrate on training. And I thought, well, it's obviously me not putting in enough work on the track. So I went away, put some more work on working on the track. But then as soon as the 2014 season was starting to approach, I started to get emails from event organisers, people that, manage the races and you, i would open this this email and i'd i'd be sick i, I would fear fear the race and I, I knew then i was like oh this isn't about the work that i've been putting on in on the track it's about the work what's going on inside my head um so at the sort of end of 2013 i, I researched and found martin and I just I just thought to myself, I'm just going to tell him my story to see if he understands it, because I don't understand this. So I'm going to tell him my story and I sort of approached him and I just said, look, I'm not an athlete at all. I'm not conditioned at all. Can you help me? Because I'm trying to get to Rio and I'm just, I'm really not in any way um, ready, I'm not. I'm 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 not a contender, but I need you to to help me be a contender. Um. So he came in very quickly and started to work with me almost weekly, to understand what 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 holding me back or what was going through my mind, and really trying to unpick it. And I, obviously, every athlete is different. I think for me, he had recognised that. My neurological pathways as a disabled person who had never been involved in sport and was an adult as well, so you're fully embedded and locked in there to your way of thinking. I think he had recognised that those neurological pathways, I I needed to create new ones, you know?
0: Yeah, I want to time out. So just for the listener and just for clarity, when you say unpick, From the mindset perspective, we're not talking about the three, you know, the four year period. Is it sort of your belief system of your childhood, the belief system at school, the belief system that sport wasn't accessible? Is that what you mean, mindset as well? It's not just the performance on the track, just for clarity.
1: It's a little bit of both. My belief systems were really ingrained. And he explained that obviously as a child, you're told no more than you're told yes. And so he did bring a lot of that methodology into it, not as a way of being a psychologist and helping me unpick trauma. it wasn't it wasn't about that. it was just about understanding why I am like this, why do I feel or think like this. So he wasn't almost he wasn't saying, "I can help you with those problems," but he was saying, let's use those to then create new ones so that your performance,
0: And potential goes forward. Got you. Yes.
1: You can alter your performance because I would get on the track and I would, it would almost, it was almost like I would forget what I would need to do as soon as that gun went off because it wasn't just the gun going off, it was the build up to the race. It was on the day of the race, it was being with other athletes that I didn't like. It was, um, the intense nerves that I hated and would almost, you know, it would make me cry. And um, it was it was the obsession that I had of what other people were doing next to me. I would be racing, almost thinking about what this person's doing. Like, oh, their hands are going quicker than mine, or oh, they they've got six pushes in and I've only got four. Like, how do you, how you can't perform when you've got that much noise in your head? Um, And so Martin worked on things such as um, race day strategies to help me almost distract myself from some of that negativity, but to keep me on task. What do you need to do? And I'd be like, well, 10 fast pushes. He was like, right, you need to do 10 fast pushes at the start. So, this is how you're going to do it. And it was literally a simple ad trying to filter out some of that stuff. But literally being on the start line, gun goes off, and you go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10 to keep you to do what you need to do. And it sounds so simple, <laughs> but I would never have got to that point of understanding how to manage your performance when your head is the one that's impacting it.
0: So almost your mindset is your worst enemy than actually your competition. And I've had the privilege to have Amy Williams, who is the gold medalist in skeleton and on the podcast show, which was such a privilege. And she kindly shared the importance of controlling the controllables. I know this term is used a lot in sport and in business, but relating to what you said, just then how important has been controlling the controllables with regards to your performance and looking at that perspective, then things you really, really can't control in the moment.
1: I absolutely agree with control, the controllable, because what you're saying, you're giving yourself accountability, is you're saying, right, okay, well, actually I can control how I respond, something but i can't control uh, anything else and i think it does give you accountability but it also helps to direct your energy in a in a better way because you're never going to not worry about things that you can't control um so it's not saying oh just get over it because I don't think people, like, we're humans. So it's really, you know, you can't just say, I'll oh, get over it or don't think about this. Like, yeah, yeah no, just don't think about it. Thanks, that's really helpful. What what you're saying is just, you know, acknowledge it almost. Like, yeah, I know you're worried about it. But if you just try and do this instead, then you're almost for a little bit forget about the weather, I was obsessed about the weather because the weather would 100% alter my performance. But the way I had to reframe it was, yeah, it does. You're rubbish in the rain, but so is everybody else. And that's when I started to then make inroads of, oh, yeah, yeah, just don't worry. If it rains, it rains because it's raining for everyone. And as a wheelchair athlete, you slip on the rims when it's raining. So, um, especially in a hundred meters, it's you—it is your worst enemy, rain. <laughs> so, um, yeah, controlling what you, how you respond, whether that's physically or even just acknowledging it, I think is really, really helpful. In fact, when I do talk about my journey, I often have—I often talk about that as a mantra. But um, Martin taught me that as well. So, um, but looking back, you'd think, oh, why didn't you know any of this stuff? But I was like 27 leading a very sort of insular kind of narrow life, you know. I didn't have much life experience, you know, beyond the office. So you only ever respond to situations such as I don't know missing a deadline or the advertising budget being cut. But actually when you're in a situation where you're at you're responding to almost life defining moments because that's what sport is and it definitely was for me life defining. I had a tendency to catastrophize um, because it was like, oh, well, if I, if I do this, then I'm never going to get to Rio. Um, so, yeah, I brought Martin on very quickly to help me address a lot of that um, elevation that I would do.
0: Just one thing I want to touch on is, because I think it's so powerful, you only hinted it, you said 2013, you wanted that season the end of... With that mindset, how has that supported you in sport and life where we just draw a line in the sand, focus on the next season? Because when I learnt from other Olympians, Paralympians with that four-year period, I've learned it's a a good trait to have, to have the ability to go, it's the end of the season, good or bad, move on. How has that supported you now with that sort of mindset too? I'm just curious.
1: Supported me now after sport? Mm
0: -hmm. Or both?
1: I think sport has 100% helped me to navigate life in the sense that I am more resilient to certain things going wrong in my everyday life, whereas before I I possibly wasn't. I think, yeah, drawing a line under it is, is really healthy as a response because ultimately what can you do you've it's happened um and even just dwelling on it even though you can't change it even if you it's it's good to learn so it's good to so one of my um athlete friends used to say to me because I'd come off the 400 meters every time and the 400 meters was one that I either did really well at or really pants at And every time I did rubbish at the 400 metres, I'd be like, oh, such a rubbish race. And oh, that was just terrible. And um, I'd be like this for a good hour. And then he'd be like, Carly, you need to chill. Because instead of you learning what what happened in that race, so for the hour, I would be there, sat there in a sulk. But actually, for that hour... I should have digested it and thought what worked well, what didn't, where was I in trouble, where did I do well and how can I prolong the well bit? Because he was like, you don't lose, you learn. And then that kind of gave me a kick up the bum to start being like, right, instead of coming off the track or instead of coming out of a meet and being really negative, which is at that time it was my go-to, that's my go-to response. That's how I'm conditioned to think. How do I alter that? Because and then that that also made a massive difference. So for the next four hundred meters, it was like, right, I know this first bend is where I need to sustain that. So it it became a tool. In a in a lot of ways, that idea of yeah, draw a line under it and don't. Don't let it impact you so negatively, but you've got to leverage it. So, yeah, drawing a line, but what was it? How do you move on? What's the solution?
0: 100%. I'm going to put you on the spot now with a definition because you said it's your biggest sort of learning lesson during your sporting period. What's your definition of resilience relating to your experience?
1: Well, um, <laughs> i I always say resilience is everyone has it um and for me, resilience is the ability to move forward i am very careful that I don't say you know move forward straight away or um tolerate difficult times you know because I don't think resilience is about tolerating or withstanding difficult times because when you're in that difficult time you're not tolerating it you're hating it You, you you know like I've had lots of difficult times after sport where I've crumbled and I've had really hard times much harder than sport and I still feel like I'm resilient, even though I might have responded in a way at the time that was going to, you know, sometimes you do need to go to bed. Sometimes you do need to just let it out. Sometimes you do just need to almost fester there for a little bit to let your emotions kind of settle. I think resilience is that ability to then almost go, well, how how do I go? Where do I go from here? And, and almost acknowledging that it does have a massive impact on you, difficult times, nobody's perfect, but your ability to then find that solution or even just that peace with certain things, you know, the things in my life that I haven't been able to control or change and resilience for me has been to find ways that I can put that energy you know where can I put that energy this horrible energy where can I put it and you know sometimes I have to adjust
0: I was going to say adapt you know, was the word I wanted to say do you think yeah. resilience is connected to how we adapt with new actions new behaviors to the direction we want to go
1: I think adapt is a really, really good word because you're not saying with that word that you've overcome it necessarily or you're not saying that you've fixed the problem because I think sometimes problems, not all problems, can be fixed in the way that you want them to be fixed. You know, if you think about what's my ideal solution here, it's not always a possibility. So there's always something else. So that adapting to it, you know. So from a sport perspective, I had to overcome a lot of barriers in terms of getting onto the programme, in terms of getting enough money to buy the equipment, in terms of um, people overtaking me in the rankings. You know, when I left sport, I was not where I wanted to be. I wanted to be higher in the rankings but I wasn't so for me it came to a point where I was like are you going to get any better do you think and I came to the I came to the sort of um point of saying no I don't think I am going to get any better so I'm going to leave and for me I adapted that and I sort of made my peace with that and moved on and and did something else so um I think it's just so individual
0: yeah I want to time out here because I want to get back to this because there's one area I want to talk about how to help athletes after this sport because it's just a theme I like to address but we haven't even got to the listeners yet or can you just paint a little bit the picture of the competitions where you got the silver medals and then get into Rio because I want people to have in this end that you actually achieved that goal from 2012 even if you said earlier in this conversation it wasn't what you expected going to Rio but nonetheless to put an idea out there where you were at the closing ceremony of 2012 to say you were going to do something and then do it like I just would love you to paint the picture of that little bit of the journey right at the end and also reflect of actually how proud you you are even if it wasn't what you expected but the proud Carly partying smoking at the Paralympics in 2012 there's not many stories like yours Carly and I'm, I'm I'm here just to remind you of that but I know internally I can hear with your body seeing your body language your tone that you wanted more at Rio but you should be still flipping proud of that four years of making reality so could you just paint that picture for the listeners
1: yeah, so from 2013, having that sort of first taste of a season that was subpar, really, um, I just, I did know that I had a lot of work to do and obviously made sure that I invested in the right areas to do that. I think a lot of people think that you just go immediately to VO, Well, not immediately, but that there's no other opportunities in between. So I learned very quickly that you could be invited to things like Grand Prix, um, international meets, things like that. You don't necessarily have to be at the, on the programme at British Athletics to be invited to things. So, that to, that to me was a marker of, ooh, you're on the radar if you've been invited somewhere. And, you know, um, from the second season, so 2014, I started to be invited to places. And I was able to put my first vest on, my first GB vest on quite soon. Uh, And that was phenomenal because I didn't actually, I had no idea that, that would have been a reality so soon. Um, So, yeah, I put my first GB vest on quite soon after 2014.
0: How meaningful was that? Sorry to interrupt. How meaningful was that, putting that jersey on from, you know, pride perspective?
1: I know. So 2014, because of the work I'd been doing with Martin as well, from 2013 onwards, I was in a much better place in 2014 and I was performing a lot better and the, the gains were much more significant. And so I think because they saw that trajectory, they were like, okay, we'll, we'll invite her, you know? I, I might have been a lane filler, but I don't care. I did not care. And, and they were like, you get to put the best on. That that was, in a way much more meaningful than any other vest because that's my first one. what that that is like that was just for me I had managed to be this person that I don't like to say manifest because I don't really fully believe in that idea of manifesting something. I, I believe in believing that you can do it, but I don't necessarily manifest. So this is the person in the when you were at, you know, London, this is this is everything this is it. This I don't know, it just felt way bigger than any other vest. Um still got that but in that way it's in the loft it's just so weird that certain things have just gone like not gone but I'm in a totally different life now but yeah so got to put the vest on a few times then got invited to Grand Prix then um, started competing internationally which was a big shift because I was just competing at a local level initially which um, is UK wide so you go anywhere in the UK but go into Switzerland or Dubai for example that's mega and then um, so I was quite conditioned to high pressure environments internationally because also you've got all the other international girls so Rio cannot be your first opportunity to raise girls you've not raced with before so I intentionally would put my hand in my pocket to go to Dubai to race or Switzerland so it was very expensive but it all kind of paid off and then got selected for this for the Europeans in 2016 I think one because I was at that level now but two, to give me experience of a major championship before Rio. That was the biggest learning curve, one of the biggest learning curves that I went on in this whole journey because I was, in the rankings for the girls that were there, number one. And I did not come away as number one. I came away as number two and you know whenever you see athletes or when I used to see athletes on the telly and they'd be crying because they've not got the medal they wanted and I used to think oh but you've got a medal and I got off my events absolutely fuming and I I Got off my events, get microphones shoved in my face. You and Thomas kind of asking me questions. And I said to him after my hundred meters, you're just gonna have to give me a minute. Because I was I was in tears. And I then interviewed and I just said, I am I'm just so embarrassed of myself. But that is so it's it's doesn't feel like it. Just doesn't feel like. Why? Why should you be embarrassed of yourself? You've got a silver. But for me, I thought I saw it as testament of. Well, it wasn't about um, the placement. It was about the time. So with with that time, I wouldn't have been anywhere near you. Because in the UK, we have a lot of girls. So if I'm going to be selected. I need to be the best, one of the best girls. And that time didn't do me justice, even though it was a silver medal. I was not happy. But then, you know, obviously draw a line under it. You do the 400 metres and the 400 metres was um, a picture finish, almost. I knew, we didn't know who had won it and I didn't win it. But I was actually all right with that one because I was like, do you know what? She's gone. So, um, you know.
0: So on that note, sorry, like, this is amazing because we've got two... There's a great little case study here. Do you think, again, I'm right relating to the listener, the key thing is accepting what you accept internally and then other times appreciating that somebody's bed on the day? Because you've given two examples where, one, it was a time metric you weren't happy with, the other one you were photo finish. But you don't... Normally... I assume it would be the other way around to a point. So, but that's my point of what why I interrupted you is it's so important to have that self-awareness within ourselves of what we accept and don't accept.
1: And that was in the same I know, event. that's what I mean. So that that's why that was such a, a learning curve because, you know, everyone would have been like, oh my God, amazing, silver. And I would just sat there absolutely devastated at the time and then the second race we and actually the time was actually better but on the second race which you know but then it was you know what I've actually done everything I could do the first race went badly because I got under I was into I was uh there was too much pressure and I didn't hone in on anything that my Mar- Martin had told me. So I just let it all get to me. I let it all get to me in the first race. And then in the second race, I didn't. And then in the third race, I won that. So, um, yeah, what a strange... I was by no means consistent with my performance, which is a reason why I did not um get reinstated onto the program after 2017 which I was actually fine with because I think in my head I had mentally almost checked out my body wasn't recovering I was older I want I wanted children um in 2017 the year after Rio when I decided to do another year because Rio wasn't exactly what I wanted It was good. I wasn't disappointed, but I just knew I could do better. There was also something poetic about finishing the journey where you started it. And for me, that was the full circle. And I was, uh, that for me, that was my fulfilment. And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to go back to that stadium and compete and say goodbye. And that's what I did.
0: So on this note, because I've interviewed... Other Olympians, Paralympians, just for or any athletes listening, how is it important, except with regards to extreme injuries, you know, medical injuries, but how important is it for the athlete to finish on their terms? Does it mean they have to be on the podium? They have to... Because I've had some athletes where coaches or third party, say, you're done, and that motivates them to prove them wrong. But I'm just curious from your learning lessons, how vital is it for an athlete to accept that their career is coming to an end? Because I think this is the sad part where when they don't have clarity within themselves afterwards, they are lost with our identity after their sport. So I'm just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Like you said, it went full circle, which is wonderful to hear, but looking back, how proud are you in 2017 to have that self-acceptance, to retire on your terms
1: I had always said just get me to VO. I had never said let's see how far you can go and I did that because I kept my goal um measured time measured because I I knew that if I put a time on it I'm gonna do it and so I didn't really expect after Rio to want to continue. Um, That was nice. I didn't have that whole, oh, let's end in London vision. Um, But for me, I just thought to myself, well, you're doing well. You're now living a life that you didn't actually think was possible. You love." your life Um, so just do another year and see how you feel afterwards Um, and so um, I think that really helped me to basically just keep doing what I wanted to do and not feel trapped or not feel that I had to keep going with something that I was no longer enjoying um, or getting anything out of so I feel finishing on my terms empowered me because by finishing on my terms, I was then able to concentrate on what I wanted next. I mean, I was quite lucky that I had um, a career before I went into sport, but I also had ambitions of a family and things, so I wanted to put that effort after sport into that and during sport I don't think I had considered how difficult it was for me to maintain relationships or any type of personal ambition because by the time that I finished sport it was very much a professional ambition It, it I wasn't uh, it wasn't a personal ambition anymore it was like it was my full-time job I'd been paid by lots of people to do this job
0: just on the sort of, you know, ath- you know, with regards to the Paralympic, there's totally different to let's say professional sports. And the one thing Martin said on his podcast that where you live, the co-op sponsored your local and there as a poster like I just want to look the other side of sport where we've got the performance on the track. How cool was it when your town or your community were supporting you? Because I think with athlete with elite sport. You you've said it already you had a team you built a team very early on but how wonderful was it to have the community like the co-opter to, like to see your poster in the shop like ha- reflecting how meaningful was that just from another perspective
1: yeah Oh, that was that was um, you know because I was in marketing before I went into sport so for me I I, I nothing nothing was an accident you know. I I made sure that I worked for somewhere that I knew would be open to letting me leave work. I put a proposal in. I had a lot of confidence by this point and I was able to leverage it to, to find um, an investment for myself. Sport is so expensive and so time consuming and para athletes don't get sponsored like non-disabled athletes. You know, the tide is turning, but at the time I had to be almost...
0: Entrepreneurial?
1: Yes, yes. I can say calculated, but I I think entrepreneurial sounds nicer. And, um, you know, uh, it, it wasn't an accident, but I definitely couldn't have foreseen the scale because I just wanted to leave work and be paid. Whereas they were then looking at the further opportunity of well let's let's create a campaign around you you know let's put you on a billboard i was in lots of stores it wasn't just that one local one it was point of sale all over the uk so there was quite a bit it was it was mega it was it was weird good weird i hope (laughs) yeah yeah i I loved it I i feel like imagine going from somebody who is almost invisible to somebody that had no one had any expectations of no one um spoke and no one spoke anything worthwhile about me. I was always I was almost reduced a lot to a medical model. Carly who has cerebral palsy. Oh I know somebody with cerebral palsy. You know, it's I would never looked at as a person. And then I went into sport, and then I was almost a person that was accepted. Yes, I was a person that was that was surviving, not just surviving, but thriving, but also dominating. And people that would have, you know, gone back bypassed me, or like not really taking me seriously, were now saying, "We're coming to me," and being like, "You're brilliant." i'm like thank you (laughs) so but i i just i it came out of such a deep-rooted need to be accepted and to feel belonged like like i belong somewhere and that's that's why i say it was no accident because even though sport showed me that i could get that if i did that um I made sure that I could create that environment, that environment, that ecosystem for myself, um, but also to set me on a path after sport as well.
0: Absolutely. Carly, I've so much enjoyed this conversation. I don't really want to stop. I've got a couple more questions, but one thing I'm curious is reflecting, what have you enjoyed the most from your journey right now, looking back?
1: I'm going to say there's not one event in particular that I enjoyed the most Uh, there's not like I can't pinpoint it because for me the whole journey overall has created a feeling and so when I look back at the journey overall I don't necessarily look back at the times that I would be crying on the track or the injury that I might have had I don't don't really recall those I just recall The overall feeling of being healthy, being strong, being impressive. Like, I would talk to people. People would be like, what do you do? And I'd be like, oh, you know, I'm a wheelchair racer. And people would be like, wow. And that wasn't something I was used to. So to get that accolade was so significant, it had a massive impact on me. And so I think I just enjoyed, I mean, it sounds a little bit narcissistic, doesn't it? But it's not, it's just the, as, as people, we want to feel that we are liked, loved, that we belong. And I didn't have that anywhere else. So sport definitely was that place for me. I think if you want me to talk about something specific, then the travel, 100% Like the life experience that I gained just by being in sport for that, that five years will stay with me forever because it, it's changed who I am. I now proudly identify as a disabled person because my condition is irrelevant. It's not about the fact that I have cerebral palsy. It's about the fact that as a, as a person, I am disabled by society by everybody else, disability is a social construct. And that's what I learned in sport as well. Because in that whole time, nobody ever talked about cerebral palsy in a negative way. They never talked about what I couldn't do. And and so for me, what I enjoyed the most was, I think, just eventually finding out who I was and embracing that identity.
0: Certainly must be better than the parties, the smoking at the age of 18, right?
1: Come on. Definitely. definitely. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Those parties just felt you just go through the motions of a party. like, And then you're ill afterwards. Like this was just, I was so, you know, I don't smoke now. I, I didn't smoke. I stopped smoking quite soon into that whole journey. I'm not bothered about it. I'm not, even now, even though I can now drink, I'm not a drinker. I'm completely changed. Like, I like a drink, but I I actually realised that I was drinking to to be the same as other people and it actually did have adverse impacts on me like I couldn't walk properly like for me and I would get quite ill and I'd be like oh god some people like this but I used to just go along with it like it was just something that you did but now yeah now I'm just totally totally different but I don't feel like I've turned into somebody different I feel like I am just who I am but I just didn't ever have that mechanic or the opportunity and
0: probably if you don't mind me saying this the education as well yeah throughout the whole journey the education oh, yeah. side of internal education of like you said your self self-awareness within sorry
1: oh no I was just going to say that um I internalized a lot of ableism and that impacts how you view yourself you know, and that whole, oh, you're not good enough, or, oh, she can't do it, and, oh, she's not capable. Self-talk. Yeah, all of that internalized liberalism, I'm just like, I, I just, I understand it now, and now, I when I talk about it, I go, it's not my fault, so, what are you going to do about it? And I feel like that has given me that confidence to then be able to in my life now, with work and anything that I do, I don't accept barriers anymore. Whereas I would have because I saw it as my responsibility to overcome them. Whereas now, I'm like, don't put them there in the first place. So even like, I don't know, I took my kid to a birthday party the other day and it was in a farm, which is muddy, but the, the car park was um a bit of a shambles and there was no like accessible parking and so by the time i got into this party i was covered in mud um and i just went to the desk and i said do you not have any accessible parking for disabled people or you know parents and they were like oh you can park um oh is somebody already in that i said yes somebody's already in that they don't you know they don't have a badge can you ask them to to move it and whereas before, I would have just been like, oh, what pain.
0: It goes back to control and control but also take initiative too. Wow, what a cool conversation. I'd like to finish with one more. I always, Carly, finish with an inspirational question. You provided examples, tips, guidance, and also just life experience through your journey. But out of interest, what three tips would you give to the listeners to really follow their ambitions in sports or in life? what would they be?
1: Well, I've said it before, but I will reiterate. I think focus on those solutions and not the problems. Quite a functional one. Uh, Practical, like a bit of practicality. When I said that I was methodical and that I was quite liking a plan, I think that people get confused with what a plan is sometimes and plans aren't meant to be rigid. And they're just frameworks to help you. So I tend to say, keep the goal, but change the plan. Because they're meant to be agile. You don't know what you're going to face. So... um, I think changing the plan and pivoting where you need to, but just always keeping that goal is essential. Um, And I think be your authentic self. Sport taught me that 100%, that it was okay to be me. And I didn't need to be in that environment anymore where I couldn't ask for adjustments. I couldn't ask for support or help. I could ask for all of that and not be considered a pain or a burden. And actually, by being empowered to then say, actually, I need, um, I need this or, you know, I need a bit of extra time to do that, I just found myself a lot more chilled out, a lot more able to focus on what I needed to do, just, you know, I had better opportunities. And I think, yeah, be your authentic self. Don't match yourself anymore. You know, you, do, you don't need to. And if you're finding that where you are is not receptive of who you are, that's not on you. So change your environment.
0: 100%. I love that third one, by the way. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more being authentic to yourself and true to yourself. But the second with pivoting the plan with your goal. Is gold. So I hope people are writing notes. But Carly, out of interest, how can people interact with you online? Like where are the best places to go?
1: Ooh, well, I am a fan of so I have a Twitter handle which is Carly T underscore WC Vasa. Um, or you could just put in my name, Carly Tate, and it comes up. Um and LinkedIn, I love LinkedIn. Not uh, always um, the platform of choice, but I think LinkedIn is having a bit of a movement now that Twitter has kind of, you know, gone a bit funny. So LinkedIn definitely, um, I talk about all sorts of things on there. Some of it work-related, but mostly not, you know, and I think LinkedIn is quite good for um, making connections and growing your network and it being actually two-way, beneficial so find me on linkedin as well
0: that's how we got connected on oh LinkedIn.
1: yeah it was. i love linkedin martin used to tell me about linkedin all the time and i'd be like oh yeah no i'll get to it and then i never took his advice and then one day i just thought oh i'll, I'll do it a little bit more and it's linkedin got so many opportunities on there
0: exactly and you build meaningful relationships business relationships which is vital yes. So look, to all the listeners listening, all those links will be on my website with regards to this awesome podcast chat with Carly. But Carly, from my end, it's been such a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ed. Wow. Where do I begin with regards to sharing my overview of this podcast with Carly? For me, it's the best example I have heard and read with the last, uh, Martin Robert Hall's book called The Inner Athlete where anything's possible if you put your mind to it. And I know it can sound really cheesy and I know it relates to today's podcast topic, how to make your sports career dream a reality. But it really is actually defined what dream means. And one of the definitions of dream is a cherished ambition or idea. And without a doubt, without g- going back and reflecting too much on Carly's journey, because for me, it's the journey where I'm all the learning lessons from this podcast. But from the moment she was at the 2012 Paralympic closing ceremony, and she told a friend in the stands, "I'm going to be an athlete at the next Paralympics in Rio," I bet, even including myself, as humans, we'll go, "Yeah, don't be daft." But It just shows with the right mindset, with the right change of habits, with the right attitude, anything's really possible. And I think for me, what I learned the most from Carly is when she applied the training with Martin and looked at her mindset as component, as performance, not just being on the track. That is probably the biggest learning lesson I learned with Carly of like the power of our mind and how we utilize it relating to our sports career goal, ambition whatever what is meaningful to us. Uh, for me, this is a lot bigger than just pursuing a career in the certain role or certain achievement you want to achieve in sport. I think there's so many more learning lessons around it. And then the second point I want to highlight, which why I really enjoyed this conversation with Carly, is being authentic within yourself. Authenticity, I think, I'm so glad isn't really a buzzword yet (laughs) with regards to sports career development education, but without a doubt authenticity is vital and how you show up, how you present yourself in the sports industry. I'm a firm believer you should be always professional and show care in your work, but you should always be true to yourself. And that's where the authenticity comes in. That's where your personality is a really important component with the to sports career development. So, I really do hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I have experienced speaking to Carly, but utilising her story and related it to yours. Because the final, final point I'm going to make is Carly has utilised her story within her life as the hero. And I think finally that is the biggest learning lesson. Now thinking about it is how she's used her story to become the hero of her own story. Uh, not looking at being a victim, of her circumstances and if you can apply that and take that one lesson what I've just said which just now has come to me when reflecting of this podcast chat and apply it to your career ambition as the hero anything's possible you just got to make it happen now as always at the end of each podcast episode I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker Carly said have a plan keep the goal in mind but change the plan when needed and pivot in the direction you need to go to achieve that goal.